Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Onet. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the CSB SCB podcast. Today, we're discussing lumbar spine performance and injury along with low back pain development during prolonged sitting and standing exposures. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Jack Callahan from the University of Waterloo. Dr. Callahan is a professor in kinesiology and the Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Spine Biomechanics and Injury Prevention. He is also the Director of the Centre of Research Expertise for the Prevention of Musculoskeletal Disorders, also known as CREMSD. And within the CSB, Dr. Callahan has previously served as the president and the conference chair. He was also the career award recipient in 2014 and is now a fellow of the society. So Jack, welcome and thank you for joining us today as one of our launch guests for the new podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before meeting you today, we looked at some of your publications, and it looks like for several years now, like the main research focus has been on spine biomechanics, but you've actually also been involved in a really broad spectrum of biomechanics research in general, and we found some papers looking at upper extremity pain and injury of the shoulder, you looked at the knee, the lower limb in general, and there even were some papers about study design and data processing, so more the methodological side of things. So can you tell us a bit more about your research program at Waterloo? Thank you. That's a great observation. Our real focus in our lab is on injury creation from chronic or time-bearing loading exposures. So really, our lab runs from fundamental research into applied research. And this is really a split between in vitro and in vivo work. So we're looking at you know, the exposures people have in day-to-day tasks. So this idea of not just doing something once, but in our daily lives, how we're exposed to things over and over again. So we document those in vivo, but that really just tells us what people's exposures are. And what the real interest in the lab is how injuries happen in the first place and that pathway or the mechanical pathway to an injury starting. And we do that with in vitro testing, where we use an animal model or cadaver specimens to evaluate the effect that loading has inside the tissue. We really combine these approaches to try and answer that question of how injuries happen in the first place. The in vitro component provides insight into this mechanical injury pathway and how they initiate from these biophysical loading that we document in vivo. And if you step back, the in vivo component of the lab really gives credibility to the kinetics and kinematics that we use to represent real-life exposures. Additionally, they also provide direct insight to human exposure in response to time-varying loading and factors that can influence, you know, safety or risk of injury. So you get people into the lab, look at them performing different tasks, and then you have the isolated tissue that you load and, and see what happens. Yes, that's probably a more succinct explanation of what I said. But uh, yeah, so we take it, we collect, you know, the normal biomechanical measures of kinematics and kinetics, so forces, EMG. We use models to derive the joint forces, and then we apply those joint forces in the tissue lab. When you do that 
are there some main parameters that you look at? Is it joint angles, configurations? What are the like main things you focus on? We really are focused in the lumbar spine. So lumbar spine posture as a whole, it would be an in vivo measure. And then we try and use modeling to, to take that down to single joints in the lumbar spine that we can test in the tissue lab. It's one of the real challenges here when you're looking at whole body movements and loading, but then trying to take it down to tissue level forces to try and represent those. So you're taking you know, five joints in the lumbar spine that tell us what the lumbar spine posture is, but we want to take one of those joints out of the lumbar spine and test it in isolation. An important and recently controversial factor that's come up and one that relates to low back injury causation and prevention is lumbar spine posture. And specifically, I think we're all referring to the sagittal plane motion. So this includes the flexion and extension. So for listeners who don't directly study the spine, can you first define lumbar spine posture, specifically that flexion and extension motion, and how it differs from how we might visualize, for example, a global trunk posture? Yeah, that's a great question, Jackie. And I think it's an area where there's a fair amount of misunderstanding. So when we think of trunk posture, this is something when we look at someone and, you know, if we created a link from the shoulder to the hips, that would define trunk posture. So somebody's bending down to the floor and we can say the trunk is flexed relative between the hips and the shoulders. When we look at the lumbar spine, we think much more of the rotation of the pelvis and the local rotation of the five joints in the lumbar spine and how those are distributed. Another way to think about this, maybe an analogy that's good, is thinking of the hand as an end effector. And I can put my hand in the same position with multiple different combinations of wrist, elbow, and shoulder postures, right? So very much the same thing is happening. I can go to the same trunk position and within somebody, they can get there with different hip flexion, so pelvis rotation and lumbar spine combinations. You know, most people have a pattern that they repeat over and over again, but different people have different patterns. So maybe to take this a bit further to make this clear is if I went to, you know, 60 degrees of trunk flexion from vertical, I could do that by holding my lumbar spine fixed and simply rotating at the hips. At the other extreme, I could hold my pelvis fixed and flex my lumbar spine fully to get to that same position, but I would have the same trunk position. Historically, we've looked at this and call it spinal rhythm, and there were theories about, you know, what was a better way to move that you initiated with pelvis first and then lumbar spine, and really there's a full spectrum. There's people that do that, there's people that do the opposite, and there's people that move the pelvis and the lumbar spine together. So epidemiologically, and some of the first work that comes to mind here is the fieldwork that was completed by Dr. Maris in the early 90s. And biomechanically, I'm referring to a lot of the repeated loading tissue work that's been completed at Waterloo. There's some pretty strong evidence that repeated exposures to these highly flexed lumbar spine postures and in combination with some compression is related to these overuse low back injuries in occupational and everyday contexts. And so what is the magnitude, both in absolute and relative terms, of flexion typically defined with respect to? And let's first start with in vivo. Most of the work are defined relative to range of motion, right? So we have people do maximum range of motion, and you would define that as 
And so that's an in vivo response because it's a subjective ability of people to say, this is how far I can flex. And then we can look at how people are moving within that range. The other reason I think normalization to functional range is important is there's a wide range of variability between and within the individuals. So if we don't account for that, we have ranges that would create such large variability as you wouldn't be able to assess where people were functionally. In the context of studying tissues and joints, we often think of this 100% as the point at which a tissue will fail or become injured as opposed to this achievable or physiological range of motion. Is posture similarly examined or tested in vitro as the way you just described in vivo? And to follow up on that, how is posture typically defined and normalized at the joint level when examining low back injury pathways? This is a challenging one because first and foremost, when you get into in vitro tissue, we don't have that subjective feedback to say here, is my range that I'm willing to go to. And that's further compounded by if we take a joint to 100% to quantify what its range is, we'll damage it. So now you've altered the tissue in trying to establish what its full range is. So typically what we do is we will take an in vitro range through a non-injurious range, trying to define what the physiological boundaries are. So that will come down to where there's a low stiffness zone, and we know in vivo that people become much stiffer as they approach end range of motion. So as long as we get that increased stiffness range, we know that's a physiological range without taking it to the point where we damage tissues. Now, trying to link the two together is the real challenging part. As I mentioned earlier to Franzi, how do you take a whole lumbar spine that we're measuring between the top of the lumbar spine and the pelvis, and now isolate that to the range of motion that's occurring at the individual joints making up the lumbar spine. The other confounding factor here that we haven't talked about is it's also situationally dependent. So if I take and I'm standing and I flex down to touch my toes, the order of rotation in the lumbar spine is a top-down rotation as we would expect. So it goes from L1 to L2, progresses through the lumbar spine. However, if I sit down, it's now a bottom-up rotation sequence, which is being driven by the pelvis. So L5 rotates first by L4, L3, so the distribution can change as well. So it's not as simple as just saying, here is my range of motion. It's made up of X contribution for this one joint. You have to understand how it's being rotated and break it down into your isolated ranges. Within this physiological range of motion, there's a small range where the spine is best suited to both distribute and withstand the internal compression loads that are associated with the various tasks that we complete. And this is often referred to as the neutral zone. And can you go into a little bit more detail on defining the neutral zone and related to that, the neutral posture? Yeah, I knew you were going to bring this up because it's become a hot topic right now in the field of spine biomechanics and low back training. First, I want to put out there is I think this is a term that's being picked up and misunderstood by many people. So right off the front, like neutral zone is an in vitro quantification of an unloaded, isolated functional spinal unit. So two vertebrae and the soft tissue between them. And all it represents is the elastic equilibrium in that joint, which is movement with essentially zero moment. 
you could almost think of it as an unstable joint where you can move that joint with very little moment. Once we take that to in vivo, I would argue there is no neutral zone. Strongly argue there is no neutral zone. People quantify it and try and link the concept back to neutral zone, but what we're really talking about is a low stiffness zone. So this idea of an in vitro quantification with no loading on the joint in the in vivo is different right off the start. I also think there's a terminology issue here that, you know, like many fields within biomechanics, terminology started and we didn't have agreement or consensus. So neutral posture, neutral zone, neutral alignment are all thrown around and sometimes interchanged. So when we think of neutral posture, that's really our natural alignment. So when we have somebody standing, we would define that as a neutral posture. That's not necessarily part and parcel of neutral zone because zone is a range. And then neutral alignment is often a mechanical term that refers to the position of maximum compressive strength. And that's a position where we take the end plates of the two vertebrae that are adjacent to each other and make them parallel. So there's an equal distribution of loading across the joint. So now in understanding how lumbar spine flexion is both defined and studied, a big question is about how posture can really drive these underlying mechanisms of overuse injury. There's a large body of work, including some of the work that was conducted in your own PhD, as well as numerous papers out of Waterloo indicating that posture can and does influence the amount of compression force that the spine can withstand cumulatively, so over multiple consecutive loading cycles, as well as the amount of force it can withstand acutely before it fails in a single loading cycle. And for this, I'm primarily referring to the Gunning 2001 paper. So what happens mechanically when we move from this neutral alignment into these flex states? So the first thing to consider is when we're in an optimal position, so this neutral alignment that I talked about, you get a nice distribution across the end plate or the whole surface of the vertebrae. As soon as you start into flexion, that redistributes the stresses and you get what you can almost think of as a stress concentration where the loading now is not equally distributed. You have higher stresses, typically at the front where the end plates are coming closer together. So now your loading is distributed differently, so you get different failure patterns. Not surprisingly, they will fail at lower loads in flexion because you don't have an equal distribution across the same tissue. Does the joint have to be at its end range of motion where passive structures like ligaments will undergo these visibly large strains for this response to happen? Or does this response occur even at the lower percentages of the postural range? It's really a continuum. As soon as you leave this neutral alignment, you start getting weaker responses. The weakest response is in full flexion, but it's not a binary, you know, you have to be full flexion to see a reduction. You get a reduction as soon as you start moving away from neutral alignment. And the other thing to consider here is that's not the only component of the lumbar spine. It is the strongest loading mode in the spine compression, but as soon as we start flexing, we start involving other tissues, like the facet joints, the ligaments become involved, and all of those are weaker components of the structure. So by flexing, we're inducing shear, and shear has about a quarter to a fifth of the ultimate tolerance that compression does. 
A big question around the effects of posture is about the evaluation of risk. And to evaluate injury risk in general, whether that be related to posture or internal loading magnitudes, we often refer to thresholds or injury functions, where beyond some point, the risk of injury increases, usually non-linearly. Are there existing thresholds for lumbar spine flexion that we know about, either in absolute or relative terms? I would say there's stronger thresholds around loading, especially from an ergonomics or occupational perspective. And some of those are not necessarily as tied to posture as they should be that we've talked about. When we come to flexion, there are standards. So yes and no. There are for trunk posture. So things like RULA that link acute postural angles to risk of injury, um, prolonged exposure. So if we think of working over an eight-hour work shift, there's total time spent in different postures, usually defined as mild, moderate, and severe flexion. And those are linked to your chance of reporting low back pain. But they're not as strongly tied between the loading thresholds and the posture thresholds as they should be. And I think this is a big area for future work and stuff we are also trying to contribute to. You know, one of the fascinating things we haven't talked about with the spine is it's weakest in full flexion for compression. But that's the posture where we can generate the greatest muscle force. So think about that. We've all done it, right? You go to pick up something heavy and you let your spine round because I can generate massive force in that posture, but it's the weakest compressive position, right? So now you have a system that can generate very high forces in its weakest position. And it also compromises the secondary axis of shear because when we fully flex, the muscle loses the ability to offset shear loading. So you have these weird conundrums that happen in the spine with loading that are tied to some of these thresholds and aren't necessarily considered. So there seems to be this trade-off between external task objectives and the internal performance or capacity of our spinal joints. And so if we wanted to establish a postural threshold, what type of work would this involve? You know, it comes back to this measuring trunk angle, which is easy in a field setting, and the standards are really tied to trunk angle and how flex somebody is relative to vertical versus measuring lumbar spine. So to take that to extreme, like I could classify somebody as being in a risky trunk posture, but they may have very good lumbar spine alignment. So sticking with this theme of neutral alignment to resist compression, so they've rotated more at the hips and they've maintained mild flexion of the lumbar spine, but they would be classified by these threshold standards as being at risk. So what really needs to come in here is the measurement of the lumbar spine itself. I think historically why that's been a problem is it's obscured by clothing, right? When you're looking at people in the field and trying to quantify postural exposure, it's easy to define trunk. It's not easy to define how much somebody's lumbar spine is flexed. And one last question before moving on to some of your more applied research. Spine flexion is a movement feature that is constantly examined in the research laboratory, through various coaching modalities, and even ergonomic aids like exoskeletons, for example. Can you discuss the importance of using basic science research, and some of which we drawed upon in our earlier discussion, to inform applied research or some of our decisions that we make in practice, whether that be occupational, clinical, sport, or recreational contexts? Well, I've struggled with this question when I looked at it, you know, from a very 
basic standpoint and maybe selfishly because I'm a basic researcher. I think basic science is critical here. You know, it really identifies the responses, how the things, movements people perform, how it can impact loading. So that research should really guide lab studies in living people to look at the potential impact of loading and responses in the whole body. And then once those are understood, those should be taken to an intervention. When you look at what impact does it have on people performing actual tasks in a workplace, training studies to see if you can implement people to change that behavior, and ultimately a longitudinal study to see if injury rates change. And then if we take it all the way to the extreme, a meta-analysis at the very end when multiple people have done this and there's some weight or burden of proof that can be collapsed to say, yes, this is the right approach to set a new threshold or a new approach to looking at something. In a more practical standpoint, I think understanding some of the things like we've talked about in this discussion around neutral posture, neutral alignment, neutral zone, how mild flexion is actually needed to align the end plates, not simply maintaining a vertical or upright standing posture when we're doing tasks, transfers directly into how coaches are having people lift, how workers understand their posture when they're sitting or standing. So getting that message out of these basic components and how the lumbar spine functions to advantage and to prevent injury, I think is key. Moving on to some of the more applied work that you do, uh, looking at analysis of lumbar spine postures in the context of ergonomics too. I think really when I thought about that, we would be talking to you. This is what I thought of first. And I guess the question is from your experience, do you think there's one common cause of low back discomfort that arises when we sit for a very long time or stand? Or is it just too many factors? You're right. I think of late, especially got known for sitting and standing work, um, you know, for the grad students that happened to listen to this was certainly not an area I started to look at in my research program or even as a PhD. Historically, the first study I did here was part of my PhD thesis, and it was really solely done because there was nothing in the literature about what kind of loads existed in the lumbar spine during sitting. And I was doing tissue work that was trying to span high loading to low chronic loading in tissue work. So I did a study simply to do the model to figure out what loading I should apply to the tissues that were isolated. And then, you know, we kind of did a couple studies, but not a lot in this area. And then many of you are probably familiar with the mass media story about how sitting is killing you and the risk of, uh, you know, prolonged sitting. And then that part of my program really exploded. People all of a sudden were interested in papers that I had done 10 or 20 years ago. And it's a fascinating area. And the other part of why I became very interested in it was standing has long been known to be associated with low back pain, much more than sitting. And so when this approach of sitting as being really bad for you came out, everybody started standing. So in my mind, people were shifting from what was probably a safer low back pain exposure in many ways to an exposure that could cause a lot of low back pain. So to answer your question, it's probably not 
muscle force, right? We've done a lot of work showing the muscles really not involved in prolonged sitting. Our muscles come on and off for postural movement, but they're largely turned off when we sit. The forces in the joints are fairly low in comparison to other things we do. But posture is pretty extreme, especially in certain people. So to link around to the neutral zone and functional range that we've talked about, everybody sits outside low stiffness zone when they um, flex their lumbar spine to sit. Many people, even the you know, you're sitting up straight trying to preserve a nice low back curvature, you're probably in at least 30% of lumbar spine flexion. And many people, typically men who slouch more round their back when they sit, can be at 80% of total lumbar spine flexion. And the other thing we've done, we did a neat video fluoroscopy study looking at seated postures and um, what I talked about of bottom-up driven flexion in the lumbar spine where the pelvis rotates under. And we've shown that in those postures, the lower lumbar joints can actually be at 100% of their functional range. So something that we think is quite innocuous, like sitting down, depending on how you do it and the postures you adopt, you can be putting your spine at quite extreme ranges of motion. So I don't think that's causing an acute injury, but you have to think we are sitting for very long periods of time. The North American average now is something like 10 to 12 hours of sitting a day. So, you know, you get creep involved in your tissues, you get fluid loss that are not fast to recover. The disc is avascular, so it changes the connections between the joints, it redistributes fluid, you get shifting from the nucleus out and you lose disc height. So I think all of these contribute to potential pathways from the passive tissues in the joint associated with sitting. That's really interesting. One thing I just thought about too, when you said that we could be in like 30% trunk flexion or even more than that. And I feel like sometimes I've experienced that with myself also when you, I don't know, you do yoga and I try the flat back thing. I realized that my perception of my position of my back is awful. I'm way better at estimating, yeah, where my hand is. And sometimes I've, I think my back is doing one thing, but then when I see myself in the mirror, I'm like in a completely different position than I had expected. Yeah, that's a fascinating observation. And it's something I've been talking to some chair companies about this as well. And there was an obscure study that came out of Australia that did exactly what you're saying, where they had people assume what they thought was a good posture and picked to a, pointed to a pictogram of what their posture looked like. And it was disconnected from the postures they actually adopted. So you're right. It's one of the challenges, right, of how do you get people into good postures or maybe even more importantly, preventing bad postures when they have a poor perception of what lumbar spine posture they should be in. You do say like we sit, well, maybe even 10 to 12 hours a day or we have to stand that long. Is there any advice that you could give to all of us that has come out of all your experience and your research? Move. I coined a term several years ago, move early, move often, MIMO, we called it in joking. You know, this is obviously a very long topic and has become a very hot topic in ergonomics. But movement early before you feel pain, I'll give you another analogy here. Um, we've done multiple studies showing that once you develop pain from sitting or standing, you can't get rid of it just by moving that day, 
right? You almost need a reset. It's like exercising and hydration. If you wait till you're thirsty to drink, you're already entering a state of dehydration, right? You need to be proactive. So you need to be proactive with movement as well. So don't wait till you have a cue of pain to move. You need to be moving early. Traditionally, the idea was around 20 minutes of sitting to eight minutes of standing to two minutes of movement, like walking. I don't like it personally, and I've made other recommendations because this only reduces our total sitting time by less than two hours a day at the office. If you think about this 10 to 12 hours again, and those are average, right? We have people sitting 14, 16 hours a day, and what we really need is about a four-hour shift to improve health. So these studies that look at cardiovascular disease, you know, low back pain and sitting, you really need to get them down to the eight, 10 hour range for a beneficial shift. So I try to target one-to-one for whatever amount of time you spend sitting, you should be trying to move, whether it's focused exercise, standing, stepping away for a walking meeting, doing something. So it's really distributing, moving early, and avoiding very long periods of sustained exposure. So don't sit for four hours in a row and then try and stand for four hours to balance it out because that won't work, right? You really need to break it up. And so we talk about this yeah, transition, sitting, standing, and you see people using a standing desk and, and trying to mix it up as an, another alternative to this, having the, the big gymnastics balls to sit on. Is that something that works? I get asked it all the time. The simple answer is no. We've done multiple studies here. Um, we have found no advantage to sitting on the ball. It's an unsupported sitting posture. So you don't have a backrest. You can't change and offload by leaning back. We found higher pressures between the buttocks and the ball. Muscle activity was no different. And postures were often worse because people collapsed, right? It took muscle activity to maintain an upright posture. So when they first sat on it, they were sitting up nice and straight. But if you're using it for sustained periods of time, people get tired and collapsed, right? So you're actually worse off. And then couple it all with them being less stable and there's a fall risk associated with them. And speaking of different ways of sitting, is sitting in a car biomechanically still the same or are there differences too? We've also done a a lot of automotive seating work. It is in some ways better. It's a more supported posture with Um, a more reclined trunk. So the hip angle is more open. And as we recline the trunk, you get more supported. So in those ways, it's beneficial. When you link office and automotive sitting together, males seem to adopt to automotive seats better. It seems to suit their preferred sitting behavior, where office sitting in females tends to involve more upright sitting with more anterior pelvis rotation. And what we have found and also in subjective feedback is females are forced into rotating the pelvis backwards and more rounding of the lumbar spine when they sit in automotive seats. So they're different. They adopt different postures, especially for females. They tend to have lower discomfort in automotive seating because it's closer to like an armchair. It's a more cushioned seat with more support than an office chair has. I think we've been nicely working up our way to this next question about maybe partially, I guess, answered it, if there are sex differences in in clinical context. 
Yeah, yeah, we certainly do in sitting. There are marked differences in the way females and males, on average, sit. There's certainly, you know, spectrums on both of them. There is really no difference in the pain reporting. It affects both groups equally. And the same with standing. We've never seen that males or females are more prone to report back pain with standing. Perhaps because the control and the posture is much more narrow in standing. We don't see as many sex differences. There are some, like we have certainly seen that males don't move as much. Pain developers, so people who get back pain in standing, move a little different than female pain developers in standing, but it's not as extreme as some of the sex differences that we've seen in sitting. Dr. Callahan recently wrote a lesson learned editorial that was published in the Journal of Applied Biomechanics. And so if you haven't read that, I strongly encourage you to do so. In extension to that, we have a few additional questions that are more philosophical in nature. And I'll start us off with, where do you see the field of spine biomechanics going within the next 10 to 20 years? And do you see any tools or techniques emerging? You know, when I was a grad student, I remember reading articles by senior people in the field as well. And I was always so impressed with how do they have these ideas of where we're going to be in the future. And now having the tables turned and being asked it, I wonder, you know, if they're the same going, oh my God, what do I say here? <laughs> so, so I have no crystal ball, but, you know, within spine biomechanics, I think what we've talked about with this difference between trunk and lumbar spine is an area I think is going to emerge. We have inertial measurement units that are becoming more accessible where we'll be able to measure lumbar spine posture instead of trunk posture. So I think that's one area that we'll see more transference from lab-based techniques into field measures, and we're going to have better ability to look at how people are doing tasks and link that back to injury and hopefully prevention. So very much that idea of trunk where somebody may have what we would historically classify as bad trunk posture, but good lumbar posture. So I think that's an area that is going to develop rapidly as tech is, I think, streaming more and more to accessible field measures. The other area that I'm hopeful for is accessible imaging that will give more insight into tissue distribution. So as simple as understanding this idea of lumped lumbar spine posture into localized measures, and even deeper into the idea like ultrasound elastography of trying to look at stiffness of individual tissues in the lumbar spine. So we know these ligaments are being loaded in these postures. This is how the disc is changing over time. And being able to localize that and understand what pathway may be explaining somebody's pain. So we really haven't talked about that aspect at all, that the vast majority of back pain is still lumped into generic. It's not like other areas of the body where we can identify a ligament or it's the disc or a certain component of that joint that is tied back to that pain. It becomes this non-specific classification. So I think that's where we're going to go is technology is going to drive tools that will allow us better insight to discriminating what's happening in the low back. For the next question, many areas of biomechanics research rely on drawing knowledge and skills from other disciplines. Can you speak to, to the value of interdisciplinary research and, and work? 
This was uh, an area that I had thought of putting in the article Jackie referred to in uh, Applied Biomechanics, but there was you know, space constraints, obviously. We're seeing a lot of interdisciplinary push. I think this ties back to fettered funding. So by that, I mean funding that the government forces to be tied to industry or application directly. So you need a partner to access that funding. So we're being pushed to take research and apply it more so now than ever. In fact, there's more federal funding that is tied to fettered applications than for basic research. And at some point, you know, you have to worry, are we going to run out of people doing basic research to feed into this application model. But as answering your question about interdisciplinary training and studies, I think it's critical, right? We need clinicians at the table. We need people that understand the fundamental mechanics, like coming out of my own lab. We need work specialists. You need all of these experiences to really have an impact on that applied side. But the other side is you're not going to understand what happens unless you have you know, a fundamental, basic, discipline-specific researcher. And maybe I'm a bit old school, but I have a firm belief that that's a strength you should have within whatever area you're interested in. And interdisciplinary research, I think, works best when you bring people from different disciplines together to solve a problem. My concern about, you know, having researchers that are trained interdisciplinary is there's a lack of ability to pivot. You tend to be focused on a specific problem. And if you take this to extreme, what if that individual problem was solved? Where I look at my program, and as you brought up at the beginning, I have pivoted into a lot of different areas because of the fundamental question around time varying injury generation is applicable to a wide range of different body regions and different questions. So, you know, I think you phrase it as specialist versus generalist. There's no right or wrong answer. I think there's a place for both, and we should have both that exist. But I think to answer what's happening is you have to drill deep in my take, and that comes from specific discipline knowledge that allows you to chase an answer. The past year and a half has come with many changes to how groups do research, and in many regions, the ability to conduct laboratory-based research has been entirely stopped. Has working from home over the past 14 months or so changed your approach to research? You know, when it first started, I won't lie, it was a nice break. In some ways, it felt like the sabbatical, a true sabbatical, where the lab's still running, you know, you have a large number of grad students and projects on the go, so you're never fully divested that you can stop and think about things. So... That was nice at the beginning, where it really stopped the day-to-day -day operations for a period. We got a huge number of backlog papers out. We've looked at starting some new areas, cellular work, and a rat-animal model coming to the lab that I don't think we would have been invested in to the same extent if we were still running day-to-day. We've been fortunate that my tissue lab has managed to stay running, so the in vitro side of our program for most of the shutdown. Our in vivo lab with human participants, we were shut for about six months. We were allowed to reopen to start a study that had started before the shutdown. 
but it has been closed twice with shutdowns in the province. So I would really say we've done minimal human studies and are still not back open again. So there has been a big change. My biggest concern is about my grad students in the lab. Some are at a good point where they're turning out papers and cleaning things up and pivoting theses, but new students that are just entering the program are the ones that are really suffering that we can't start new studies. So there's been a big impact. To end this episode, we have five rapid-fire questions for you. Um, please try to answer each in one sentence or less. So the first one is about reading material. Is there a book or paper that you would recommend to biomechanics grad students? I wrote down four. So <laughs> to me, Dave Winter's textbook, The Biomechanics of Motor Control and Human Movement, is still a book I look at to this day. So for a general biomechanics grad student, I think you should have that book and you should read it. As a material scientist, I think the new science of strong materials or why you don't fall through the floor by Gordon is a fascinating read. You know, as a cadaver researcher, Stiff by Mary Roach, The Lives of Human Cadavers is a fun read. And I think it ties so closely to our area that it's fascinating. And then I'm always reading fiction as a way to step away. So I would recommend Beneath a Scarlet Sky by Mark Sullivan. It's a true story about a boy growing up in Italy during the Second World War. One of the best books I've ever read. Number two, what was your first paper about? How muscles respond to the same moment applied through different vectors. What is a fond memory of your time as being a grad student? I feel if I don't answer meeting my wife, I would be in trouble. What is your favorite thing about working at the University of Waterloo? Faculty, grad students, and the support from the institution for both of us. And number five, what is one thing you wish you had known when you started as a faculty member? This is a long list, but one thing I think is the importance of time management and being able to run multiple projects at the same time. And that concludes our discussion and episode number two with Dr. Jack Callahan. Dr. Callahan, thank you again for your time and this thought-provoking discussion. Thank you so much for having me. In our next episode, we will be discussing the topic of muscle mechanics with Dr. Walter Herzog from the University of Calgary. Once again, for all podcast-related questions and inquiries, don't hesitate to email us at students at csb-scb.com. Mm -hmm.